My name is M. Jason Graham, and this is the M. Jason Graham Show. Rare Disease, Invisible Communities, Part 1. Last year, I realized how resistant to change I was becoming. If I move too quickly from a seated position, the joints in my ankle, knee, and hip lodge a protest. Now, the protest barely registers, but I notice it. And this is not the only area where I have noticed more superficial concern for myself. Superficial because it is rooted in the momentary dopamine hit rather than a balanced equilibrium. I have to admit, once I gave myself permission for actual introspection, I realized that I was more tolerant of the institutional systems that have quantitatively and qualitatively injured me in my entire life than I was tolerant of the general interactions I had with fellow human beings. Look around. This is a global problem. We become so focused on navigating institutions that entire intersections of communities have become invisible. Over the next few episodes, I'm going to speak with guests that are members and advocates of such communities. Today's guest is Dr. Kim Stevens. She is the president of Project Alive, a research and advocacy foundation funding gene therapy as a cure for Hunter syndrome. Now, Hunter syndrome is one of 7,000 diseases categorized as rare, and Dr. Stevens is going to share her personal narrative with this disease and Project Alive. As usual, I can be reached by emailing the MJG Show at mjgstorycreation.com. And now, Dr. Kim Stevens. Dr. Kim Stevens, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jason. So if you could start by telling us a little bit about your background and your organization. Yes, so I'm the president of Project Alive, which is a Hunter Syndrome Research and Advocacy Organization. And so I've been a president now for over two years. And I got started uh, with Project Alive because my son, Cole, who is now 10, was diagnosed with Hunter Syndrome when he was two and a half. And could you tell us, what is Hunter Syndrome? Yeah, so Hunter Syndrome is an X-linked X-linked. Um, disease. So that means it's it's passed on by the mother or it can be a spontaneous mutation. But basically the boys are missing a enzyme that takes waste out of their body. And these gags, as they're called, build up in their major organs, such as the brain, the heart, the spleen, the liver, and cause damage that eventually leads to a shorter life for our boys. This is a terminal illness then. It is. It's a progressive disease. Boys usually start to present with Hunter syndrome around the age of two to three. So they progress like a neurotypical child, but around two or three, they may, you may start to notice that they're losing their speech or they're not hitting their milestones as a, a neurotypical child with. Now, I should mention that Boys with Hunter syndrome have either the severe form, which two-thirds of our children do have, or they can have an attenuated form. And with the attenuated form, there's less cognitive involvement. And so they tend to develop neurotypically. What are some of the ways that this syndrome impacts the lives of family members? Yeah, so there is a 
enzyme replacement therapy that's available, that's been available since 2006. And so they have a weekly infusion. These infusions usually last for about four hours. Um, We're lucky now to have the infusion in our home. So every Friday, our nurse comes to to the house and gives Cole his infusion. So that's one of the ways it impacts, but it's also for boys that um, have the severe case, they tend to be perceived as more aggressive. They, you know, as I was saying, their cognitive decline starts around age three so that they may start to lose their speech like Cole has where he's nonverbal at this point. They may start to um, lose some of their mobility as they get older, their ability to swallow, eat, all of this progresses in a downward angle. So this condition affects all of, uh, all of the organs? Basically, yeah, because it, it's, it's anywhere that you have any sort of waste products, uh, sugar being taken out by the body, and, and they're missing that enzyme that breaks that down. So for instance, in the heart, we see that these gag accumulations can keep the heart valves from closing completely so that they have a little bit of leakage. Most of the boys have a murmur that you can hear visibly and in some their valves start to thicken even more so that their heart isn't functioning exactly like it should. Spleen, we see in large spleen area, the enzyme replacement therapy helps quite a bit with that. We start to see the boys' stomachs start to go back down as their, their spleen starts to begin um, the enzyme that they're missing. But for the brain right now, that enzyme replacement therapy that they're on doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. So there's nothing really in place uh, for that at this time. We're seeing a lot of great clinical trials trying to address the blood-brain barrier and get the enzyme that they're missing um, so that the boys will not have that cognitive decline. But right now, there's no approved therapy. I guess I I should ask first, if you would share some of your son's diagnosis journey with us. Yeah, so Cole was diagnosed at two and a half. I had never heard of the disease, didn't know it existed, which isn't surprising. There's over 7,000 rare diseases, but we hadn't seen this in our family. And as I said earlier, it's usually an X-linked disease. So many families will see this in their past, whether that was a a brother or an uncle or someone who had had Hunter's syndrome. For us, it was, again, the first time we had heard of the disease. So he actually presented first with ear infections, which is very common for our kids. And those are often pushed aside as, oh, it's an ear infection. All kids get ear infections. Oh, they're attending preschool. Of course, they're getting ear infections. But these were just multiple ear infections where, you know, he was at three months, he was getting ear tubes, six months having those replaced, just continuous. And then he had hernia, double hernia. So he had to go get that fixed at six months, which is another early sign of Hunter syndrome. And so we weren't, we were just sort of seeing these these things happening that were each sort of dismissed by his primary physician and even the specialists that we were going to see. And it was only after we moved from Texas to Tennessee and we went to a different ear, nose, and throat doctor that he looked at Cole and said that he seemed to be presenting with some of the facial features of boys with Hunter syndrome. And that coupled with his hernias and his ear infections, he suggested we go and see a geneticist, which we did. 
after I, I, a lot of turmoil, again, of not knowing, of first hearing that your child has this rare progressive disease. Um, so we had a geneticist that gave us back the diagnosis of Hunter syndrome or MPS2, mucopolysaccharidosis 2. And so we started down our journey with Cole at, at about two and a half. How has the pandemic changed the impact on, on your family? Yeah, it's interesting. We get asked that quite a bit because, but you know, before the pandemic, we were pretty closed in family. I was always worried about Cole getting some infection or getting the flu or something because our boys tend to have a compromised airway. It just starts to get a little bit smaller and smaller. So I always worry about hospitalizations because of his airway. So this just made us even more where we're not going out. We don't go anywhere. We go to, Cole is in a clinical trial, so he goes monthly to the hospital to get his infusion. So we do that. His nurse comes here for the infusion, but it's just even more focused on making sure that none, you know, that COVID doesn't come into our house because I don't know how that will affect Cole if he does get the disease. You know, we hear a lot about being put on ventilators. Well, he's a difficult intubation, meaning it's, it's harder to get the tube down his throat because of his narrowed airway. So it, it's just made us more nervous, more, we worry more, I think a little bit than average folks, perhaps. I don't know because that's all we know. You know, we've been living in this world for the past eight years where we're always worried about Cole getting sick, going to the hospital, or for me getting sick so that I can't take care of him. So it's, it's really just magnified the worry, I think, for us. So he gets a treatment every week. Somebody comes to the house to give him a treatment every week. And then on top of that, he also goes and gets a treatment once a month. Yes. So he's been part of a clinical trial since he was four, uh, four and a half, um, where he is one of about 60 kids in the world getting the enzyme that he's missing directly into his uh, cerebral spinal fluid. So the way he gets that is he goes to the hospital. I hold him really tightly and they give him a lumbar puncture and the lumbar puncture and then they give the medicine directly into his spinal column. So we do that once a month been doing that for the past, like I said, for the past six years plus. And so that helps to get the medicine to the brain that he needs. Wow. Um, just that the thought of have uh, of, of anybody, let alone uh, a child having that kind of treatment done every month, you know, it, mm -hmm. it really is amazing. And you as a parent kind of having to watch that and understand it. What are some of the other therapy and treatment options that are out there to, to treat this condition? Yes. Yeah, so we, you know, we've been very hopeful. Hopefully some of your listeners have, have started to hear more about gene therapy, putting a working copy of the gene into the child in this case, so that the, they, the body can begin to create that enzyme that they're missing. So we have a clinical trial going on right now, and that trial has already dosed some of the younger kids. They're going to be starting uh, very soon dosing older kids to give them the missing copy of their gene. So we're very hopeful with that, that, that um, working copy of the gene will go straight into the brain and hopefully start to create enzyme so that the body we're hoping will no longer be dependent on these weekly infusions and will begin to produce the own and its own enzyme. We also have some weekly treatments now 
another clinical trial whereby IV, the kids can get the enzyme that they're missing both to their brain and to their body. They have some great technology now that having that enzyme cross the blood-brain barrier. So it's very hopeful. I I say now, and it it sounds kind of trite in a way, but this is the best time right now for a child to be diagnosed with Hunter syndrome because it's, it's sort of the first time we're able to say, okay, now we've got something that can help in the form of clinical trials to help these kids early And that's really the key is getting the children early before, as I described before, that damage really starts to happen as these gags start to accumulate and they start to uh, hurt the organs of the body. We talked a little bit about the effect of having a child that has this kind of condition. And there is a community that is out there. What what is the name of that uh, cohort? Yeah, so it's it's interesting when your child has a rare disease because I, I really stress how you have to find your community. And so our Hunter Syndrome community is so strong. We've created it on Facebook mostly, but a lot of us are, are in the clinical trial together with our kids. A lot of us has, have met up, not so much because we live in the, in the same state. For instance, in Tennessee, uh, with Hunter Syndrome, there's only, t- there's only two of us. Um, So there's a family in Nashville, and then there's our family in Knoxville, but we're very good friends, and our whole community really bonds around this idea that nobody else understands exactly what we go through every month, every day as we struggle with this disease, as we see our children start losing skills, and we're analyzing, saying, okay, is this the beginning of the the downward progression, or we're talking to each other online saying, okay, my child's in the hospital, we're thinking a port infection, a port cath where they get the infusions. What do I ask the doctor for? What do we need to have, make sure that we get done? And we're all sharing that information based on our past experiences. And this is really invaluable because, you know, especially if you go to the hospital, this may be the first time the emergency room has seen a child with Hunter syndrome. So they don't have experience with that. So taking what you know as a parent and being an advocate is so important and having this community where we can fall back and say, what have you done in the past that's helped with this situation really makes it important to the child's health and of course to the parent's mental health as as we feel like we're not so alone in this because it is such a rare disease. So the rare disease cohort, you said it's about 7,000 uh, 7,000 rare diseases, 7,000 7, rare, rare diseases, yeah. 7,000 rare diseases. So your interaction with the larger community, as you just said, there may be medical professionals. You walk into a situation where it's the first time that they've encountered where one of the 7,000 rare diseases. What are some of the ways that you as a parent, as a family member, do self-care? How do you make sure that you are at your best so that you can always be there to care for Hunter? Yeah, you know, that's that's a difficult question. I was asking myself this yesterday, <laughs> Jason, after I had wrangled with insurance all day trying to get Cole's enzyme replacement therapy covered. I, you know, it, it's a lot of the time it's the last thing on the list just because we don't have time for it and we're so worried about our child. But, you know, I, I really try hard to make sure that I get out and run 
or walk every day. I need to do that. I need that time by myself where I can sort of reset my brain and just think about, okay, this is this is my time where I can think about my day, but also to sort of think about how I'm feeling, how my body is feeling, how it's reacting to all of this sort of stress around me. So I try to do that every day. I'm pretty good about it. And I notice that if I miss a day, then someone in my household is saying, please, mom, go run, go do something, <laughs> you know, because you, you need to get that out so that I, I am a more pleasant person. So you, you really have to have some sort of outlet to do that. You know, I speak nearly every day with other moms of boys with Hunter syndrome. You know, we're, we're all constantly talking, whether we're just sharing our ups and downs of the days or we're just venting again, because we, we go through the same things. And so we know what, what it's like, you know, like I said yesterday, when I was arguing with the insurance company, I, I turned to one of my other moms and she's like, oh yeah, I had to do that last month. And, and there's not really anything she can do, but she can listen and sort of empathize and sympathize with the struggle that I have and say, it's, it's, it's okay to be angry about this. It's okay to go full mama bear on the insurance company. Sometimes you just got to do that. Of course, of course. So that's really important to have that sort of community around you and especially in a rare disease necessarily where your family and your friends that you normally have in your everyday life may not understand exactly what you're going through. They may try, but it's great to have a community that they know exactly what you're going through and and they may just sit with you, right? They may just sit with you in in your your pain and that's sometimes all you need really to do that. We also talked about the difficulty of their disease cohort and interacting with the larger community at times. Could you talk about a time where where we as a larger community could have been more understanding and given a little more grace? Could you talk about one of those times? Yeah, I have so many <laughs> that you just, you know, I, I we, we sort of talk about in our rare disease community, so sometimes it's easier just to stay in our bubble um, because once we go outside of our bubble, we have to deal with the public at large that doesn't understand. So for Cole, he doesn't have any physical presentation of disease, but he is very sort of not a hyper in a way, but he's very sort of, he, he'll take off, he's impulsive. And one time we were at the hospital during his clinical trial. And he, this, I think we we're on day three of going through testing and MRI and bronchoscopy and just, you know, thing at one thing after the other. And we had gone from one end of the hospital to the other end of the hospital and Cole had had enough. I had had enough. <laughs> and he just laid down on the floor in, in the in middle of the hospital and just lost it. <laughs> he was just, right. and, and all honesty, I wanted to join him, but you, know, you can't do that as a parent. And uh, I remember one of the hospital, um, I believe he was, he was helping another woman out in a wheelchair. And he said, ma'am, would you please get your child up off that dirty floor? And you know, the, again, it, it was sort of, he was making a judgment about my parenting abilities that I was letting my child, letting my child lay on the floor when I knew this is exactly what my child needed right now. He just needed to feel some control. He needed to be on the floor and just show that he was upset 
angry, tired. And for, especially if you're not really, if you've never been around a nonverbal child, sometimes that's the only way they can express themselves. So, you know, for me, it would have been fine. I would have just let him sit there for three or four minutes. He would have sat there for three or four minutes and then we would move on. But for me to have to deal with this sort of judgment from a stranger, perfect stranger who thought he knew better really just made me angry and makes you want to just stay in, you know, it makes you just want to not go out and interact with people because it's exhausting to have to explain what this disease is and what it means and what your child has gone through that day. And, you know, from the outside looking in, sometimes it looks, it just looks like he's being, you know, a brat or he's throwing a tantrum or something. And and you you have no idea what this child's just gone through and what he's had to do. And so that's very frustrating, I think, for the most part. So, yeah. I also wanted to ask you because my mother has a nervous seizure condition and she she had it as a result of being misdiagnosed with epilepsy and so from ages eight I think it was eight to 35 she was prescribed phenobarbital and had to take 3,000 milligrams of it a day as a prescription and they figured out when she was an adult that she didn't actually have epilepsy so of course that amount of drugs affected her neurochemistry and so she used to have seizures all the time and as a child she would have them under stress and as a kid I you know I remember being embarrassed like being afraid for her to have to come to the school or it Mm -hmm. being uh, parent teacher night or or anything you know I I even remember back in, in when I was in college my first year and I had a I was in a play and she actually got too excited from seeing me in the play and had a seizure. She was in the audience. Could you speak to that experience in, in managing for yourself, not just the judgment of, uh, of your child being kind of seen as a brat, but also just the idea of needing the interaction and needing the support, but not really knowing how to ask for it? Yeah, I think you know, what you're experiencing too is, is it wasn't so much your reaction to your mom. It was other, other people's reaction to your mom that, that brought that. If you'd had sort of a embracing of, oh, it's okay. It's your mom's having a seizure and and you sort of reassured that that's okay. Then that would have been a different experience for you. And I think early on, I was sort of thrown off by how, how do you take this in as a special needs mom? And, you know, at at one point early in the diagnosis, when Cole was maybe three, so he had just been diagnosed and we were going to North Carolina for the clinical trial. I was sitting at the airport and this woman came up to me and I was sitting with Cole in my lap and he he was sucking on a pacifier at that time because the, the boys like the sort of stimulation And she said to me, are you a special needs mom? And I kind of looked at her a little bit funny because I wasn't really comfortable with that name at that point. I I wasn't sure, you know, we were early in the diagnosis and I didn't know what, what was going to lead to. And so I sort of said, yeah, that's, yeah, I am. And she, she looked at me and she looked at Cole and she goes, you special needs moms. I wouldn't trade places with you for anything in the world. Really? Yeah. And you just 
the shock of someone saying to that and you know she she had said prior to that that she was a nurse so I thought perhaps she was going to offer some sort of help or something but she didn't yeah something right empathy you know something but it wasn't it was to come over and and say she wouldn't trade places with me for anything in the world and so I didn't know how to feel about that you know it's an insult I guess And she's telling me that I'm in a terrible position. She's telling me how I should feel. So I think after that, I started to sort of get my backbone, I guess, as a special needs mom. Um, And you have to, right? You have to sort of own it Mm -hmm. and and really start to ask for help when you need it. I'll, I'll tell you another story. I was on a flight, Cole, again, we were going to the clinical trial. So we were flying from Knoxville to um, Raleigh and there was a gentleman sitting beside me on the plane and I always feel bad for the people sitting beside me, but he was sitting beside me. Cole, I think was in the middle seat or he was by the window and I was trying to get Cole sort of settled into a seat and he didn't want to put his seatbelt on at all. And so the airline stewardess, she came back and or the flight attendant, she came back and she looked at me and she goes, is there a problem here? What? Yes. Again, it wasn't helpful. Like a police yes. officer? Yes, 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 yes. And um, so it's like, I said, no, I've got this under control. Just come back in, in a few minutes. And so I'm trying to get Cole in his seatbelt. He doesn't want to get in his seat. He had already been on a flight from Knoxville to Charlotte. So his ears were bothering him from the flight. And this gentleman's sitting beside me. And I'm trying to hold a seatbelt on. And I just turned to the man beside me. And I said, would you hold this video player? I said, because you and I both want to get to Raleigh and I need help. <laughs> and he's like, yes, yes, I will. And, you know, and he, he held the player while I was holding Cole in his seat with the seatbelt and the flight took off, right? So sometimes you just have to do that. You know, like I said, I've gotten much better about asking for help because you just need it. And, you know, flying with a toddler at that time, I was just beside myself most of the time, was struggling. So I'm lucky to have people that, you know, strangers, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a man holding a video player for me that stepped in and said, you know, she obviously looks like she needs help. Let me help her. And, you know, subsequently, whenever I'm flying and I'm by myself for business back when we were flying if I ever see a mom struggling with by herself with a child I'm always going to be there to help you know I'm always going to help that person who may be in a wheelchair that can't reach something because I know that struggle I've done it and and sometimes just the kind word of a stranger can make all the difference in your day wow just a couple of more questions uh, the, the first one being people who want to find out more about Hunter syndrome and Project Alive. Where can they go? Yes, you can go to projectalive.org. We have a a website and you can see some videos of some of our boys. You know, Project Alive was started by three moms that were looking for some therapy for their child. And that's where the name comes from, you know, trying to keep our children alive. A lot of people uh, talk about how they want their child to be a a fireman or um, they want to be a police officer or an actor. And, you know, for us, it was just, we want our kids to be alive. And so really that's what Project Alive was started on and about that premise of, of let's get gene therapy moving forward because we think that's a, a really great way to help save our boys' lives. So projectlive.org. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, and we would love for you to check out our site. 
And also, and I'm sorry, this is a, kind of a secondary question. Sure. What can what can we do as a, a larger community to help the to help the rare disease cohort? Like, what is it that we can actively do to do that? Like the fact that medical trials take so long, and that yeah. there are so many rules. Is there anything that I can do as a citizen to help in those areas? Yeah. So right now with Project Live, we're raising funds for a clinical trial, thinking, trying to push the science along as much as we can. So there's, with 7,000 rare diseases, there's always a need for funding and volunteers at different organizations to help try to get, move the science forward and find cures and treatments for these rare diseases. So that's always important. If you see someone that you think may have a rare disease, be supportive of them. There's lots of organizations that are dedicated just to a rare disease. We have a couple called Global Genes. We have NORD and we also have Every Life Foundation, um, and Every Life Foundation is a great organization to get involved with because they go to Capitol Hill and talk with legislatures about bills that may help us in, in our community um, so, so that we can start getting these treatments. So that those are all good places to start looking and start finding out, finding out more about the special needs folks around you the kids around you. It's amazing when you're in this world and your awareness for special needs and rare disease is amplified. And then you start looking around going, wow, I know this person that has a rare disease. And I know this person that has a rare disease. And just thinking about how you can help. But you know, for like Project Alive, we're an organization across the whole United States. So anybody anywhere can get involved with us. And, and it's the same for other organizations. Most of these organizations were started by parents of, of children with rare disease, and, you know, when they went looking for treatments for their child and said, hey, there's nothing out there, let's go figure it out. And so they need support, they need people to be aware of what they're doing, and volunteers, funding, all of these sorts of things are very helpful. Okay, and the, the last question is the question that I ask every guest. What are two or three books that you think that everyone should read? Yeah, so in my other part, and what we didn't get to talk about today, Jason, oh, yes. but we'll have to do it in a different podcast, is that I work on diversity and inclusion. So uh, my focus in my consulting work is I work on unconscious bias. So I'm always reading books that will help me understand unconscious bias, understand diversity, and understand inclusion. So one of the fundamental books that really got me started when I started thinking about bias was Blind Spot by Dr. Mazarin Banaji and Dr. Anthony Greenwald. And it's a great book just to sort of see how bias seeps into our everyday lives and how we have biases because of our past associations, our social framework. And then building on that one, because it's a more intimidating book, because it's about this thick, which I've been told a couple of times is, <laughs> is a lot. I read books all the time. So to me, I'm like, great, it's the thicker, the better, because I get to stay with the characters and, and learn from it. But Thinking Fast and Slow, great book that really takes you into how our assumptions and our biases have been built over time. And that's by Daniel Kahneman. And then the last one we talked about when we were talking is, why are all the Black kids sitting together in in the Cafeteria by Beverly Tatum. And I think this is just a great book for people who are starting to try to understand what systemic racism is and how it was built and how it is 
in everything that we do. And so Beverly Tatum is just tremendous in the way that she takes us through that and builds on her sort of argument of systemic racism. So I love that book. Dr. Kim Stevens, thank you so much for joining us here today. Yes, thank you for having me. It was great to talk with you, Jason. And I love when people are interested in rare disease and Hunter syndrome. It's great. Thank you. I would like to thank Dr. Stevens for sharing her family's personal journey with us and for shedding light on this rare disease. According to the U.S. National Institutes of Health, a rare disease is defined as a condition that affects less than 200,000 people. Now, Congress created this definition during the passing of the Orphan Drug Act of 1983. Rare diseases became officially referred to as orphan diseases. You know, orphans, as in children that nobody wants. Congress actually had to pass an act to create financial incentive for companies to develop new drugs for rare diseases. Dr. Stevens shared many personal experiences with us today. Maybe now you have developed a bit more empathy Maybe the next time you see a parent extending grace to an exasperated child in public, you will not be so quick to judge. Maybe next time, you'll remember that you are only witnessing a footnote in the complicated narrative of their lives. Maybe, just maybe next time you will empathize and extend to that parent and child the same grace that you would appreciate if your roles were reversed. For more information about Dr. Stevens and Project Alive, go to www.mjgstorycreation.com and click the MJG Show button. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. And don't forget to like, favorite, or subscribe. Until next time, take care of each other. The M. Jason Graham Show is written and produced by M. Jason Grant. The theme was composed by Travis D. Artist. This has been the M. Jason Graham Show. I'm M. Jason Graham.